Well, tonight is August the 1st, 2012. Uh, the title of the message is uh, Reveal Through Suffering. So, if you can, turn me to Philippians chapter 1. Test 1 to 2. All right, so somewhere back, I would say in the 80s, when home computers began to get on the rise, there came the term virtual. I'm sure it was always there, uh, part of the English language. But it, it was more connected with our everyday use, because now in every home, you had a personal computer, and something that once was had to be tangible, so let's say a spreadsheet, a picture, or even a document, was now able to exist in a digital world. It was real, but it was virtual. It was, it was not tangible, it was something intangible, but still had substance and still had reality to it. But one thing that has grown since the early 80s more and more is our ability to imitate what is real in a virtual or digital world. I'll just share part of my own, my own testimony here a little bit. Is that growing up, here we had the Atari 1400. It had the wood grain on the outside, and it was black. And it came with all these discs, these uh, cartridges that you would insert. And you would look at the, the eight foot tall rack, four feet wide, of all the games that you have acquired over the, the past six months. <laughs> and you would select one of those games, I don't know, like Asteroids or Pac-Man or Frogger, whatever it may be was your liking. You would plug it in, and in this little, little bitty cartridge, there came this alternate form of reality. Now, given that it was, I think at that time, uh, an 8-bit system, very, very 2D, it looked like a steamroller ran over everything that appeared on the screen, on the screen. it wasn't necessarily a, a true alternate of reality, but I can say as a kid, it was a form of entertainment that later became a form of escape. Now, how can you escape into the game of Pong? Well, it's pretty easy when that's all there is out there. It's one of the first arcade games made. So there I am at the age of five, playing Pong. Do the math in your head, you can determine how old I am. But I'm, I'm playing this game for hours. And even when I go to bed, uh, my hands would still move in the same action on the, the little uh, paddle that you would use. And I could hear the noise and see the images back and forth. I would dream about it every single night. Well, let's fast forward from the early 1980s all the way to present day. And now you have games where literally I cannot tell if this is computer-generated graphics or if it's real shots. What man has always longed to do is to take what is intangible and make it tangible, but leave one thing out. Can anybody guess? Hmm. Reality. Accountability. What do you say? God, absolutely. Reality. But one portion of reality. Because they're incorporating reality as much as they can. And I'm kind of pushing you guys. I'm leading you. Touch. But how about this? Okay. Call of Duty Black Ops 2 coming out August, whatever. What's the one thing about these shooter games that is not part of reality? Death. Death. Being shot. Yeah. Pain and suffering. Yeah. It allows you to have this third-person wow. or first-person view of someone who is running around, throwing grenades, lighting off, you know, 
uh, rounds and rounds of clips, shooting and engaging enemies, but with no suffering and no consequence on your part, beside the fact that you lost one of your 15 guys that you have to now replenish and regenerate. So what man's craving and desire is to replicate something that looks real, that feels real, but has the one thing in it that we do not want to experience, and that's suffering. Can you say when you look within your own life, how many times have you tried to replicate or duplicate something that God has given you that is real, but you've tried so hard to remove from it the element of suffering? Let me give you some different examples that pertain to the audience in the room in its entirety. So, at the age, ladies, for you, around five years old, guys, whatever age uh, beyond that, you begin to think about what's it going to be like to be married. Some of that's based on the couples that you see. Some of that is based upon uh, your home environment or just TV and Hollywood in general. In fact, that's probably more the influence that we have than our homes themselves. It builds this fantasy, right? So ladies, it builds this emotional roller coaster of, I was in dire straits and he was about to forsake me, but then he turned his back on the entire world and saved me from my peril. He's my knight in shining armor. Joel said amen to that. <laughs> and then you have the sleepers in Seattle scene. They're atop of the Empire State Building. They kiss and they run away into the ever-present happiness and bliss that eternity has. Right? It is this fantasy. It is this reality being brought to the big screen or something that you have in front of you. Because honestly, before movies, there were books. In case you didn't know, there used to be books that people absorbed all their entertainment from. You know what they did? It was ingenious. They took books and they made movies out of them. Oh, my word. So anyway, here you have this fantasy of emotion that simulates reality as close as it can. But one thing it removes is the sense of suffering. So if all I watched, watched over and over again is Sleepless in Seattle or all these movies that depict what this ideal relationship, you know, serendipity is probably another one. Don't throw stones at me, ladies. But there's just this one out there. No matter what I do, I will eventually find him and he will find me. It is serendipitous that we meet. It never counts into the fact of sin. Mm. That sin can remove you from the will of God. What we pray for for our four girls is yes, that God right now is beginning to raise up for them a godly man that will cover them and shelter them, treat them as Jesus would, meaning that he will not only bring her or my girls into his talit, but he will also use God's word as a standard for his home and hold her accountable to it. Mm. How many movies have you seen like that besides maybe fireproof or courageous? Mm. What we long for, and what I mean by we, is what our fallen sinful nature longs for, is the blessings of the reality of God without the penalty. It doesn't want the influence of sin. In fact, that's what sin does. It paints a virtual reality for you, but removes the effects thereafter. So is everybody in Philippians chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1. J.J., read for me verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. 
For it has been granted for you not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. With that thought in mind, let's go back to the idea of marriage. I want to make sure I wrap this up. So here I am, 17 years old. Hey, let's, let's go to 19. Much better story here. I'm 19 years old. I'm born again for a few years. I'm expecting that now that I believe upon Jesus, that it is my right and entitlement to have a godly wife. That I'm now living on my own, paying my own bills. I've done it for six months, therefore I deserve a reward. <laughs> and I'm wondering, Lord, when, when will this come? When will I have the fulfillment of the longing of my heart? In fact, there were several prophecies that came about depicting what my wife might look like and certain characteristics about skin tone and hair and all that. Well, it just so happened one Saturday, I'm vacuuming. I know I told this before, it's pretty funny, I'll let's say it again. I was vacuuming. And not because I was vacuuming or cleaning house, but because I was feeling alone in my call and endeavors of fulfillment to Jesus. I was crying out for a wife. I was literally, tears were coming down my eyes as I was vacuuming. And I had this fantasy build up. This virtual reality of God's will for my life, that my wife would look like this and we would meet at this church service. I would fall down in the Holy Ghost and she would fall down next to me. We would look next to each other and say, hey, how are you? How are you? Hey, I'm going to marry you. I'm going to marry you too. <laughs> that all this storyline was already played out. And I, I could find God's will to that virtual reality. And so here I was vacuuming. I'm crying out. And the minute that I said, Lord, I need a wife. I need to be married. Next thing you know, the doorbell rings. Uh -oh. And look, I had that split second thought. I said, you, you answered me right now. You sent her to my door. You are amazing, God. I can't believe this. Well, there, I mean, I'm, I'm shaking as I open the door. Or, or yeah, open up to answer it. And there before me stands a young lady who matches that entire profile. I am trembling to the point where I am stuttering left and right, if not have no words at all to say even hello. It goes something like this. <laughs> and she kind of looks at me a little weird, but then has a very nice smile and says, Hi, how are you? And she hands me a pamphlet. And time is just frozen in this moment. I'm soaking it all in saying, Lord, you are so great that you sent my wife to my door and she is handing out pamphlets for you. She is witnessing on your behalf. This is amazing. Until I take the pamphlet, turn it over and see it's from the Kingdom Hall. Oh. She's Jehovah's Witness. Oh. At that point, I just crumbled inside and say, no, 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 no. My virtual game was over. Oh. So in my very godly response, I stepped back and slammed the door in her face <laughs> without explanation of really what it was. She was probably used to that, but she didn't fully understand the reason why I did. At that moment, God just took my little idol that I had built and fashioned to look like him, but was really something I wanted to worship. And he stepped on it until it was a million pieces. And I remember crying out saying, Lord, but I, th I thought, and before I could get the word thought out of my mind, he said, how dare you? Mm. How dare you confine me to your will? Mm. And I realized at that point 
that being born again is really the first of a lifetime of actions of saying, my life is yours. So at every turn, every day in my life, in some form or fashion, Jesus finds a way to say, I smell an idol, let's step on it. Let's have an idol crushing party. And it's gonna hurt you, how about that? For it is granted unto you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Let's go through some of the things that, now it's not necessarily heresy, but what would be some temptations that Jesus had? That he had to push aside and not let it become an idol to him. Well, we have three recorded that we know of in the Word. One was natural food. Okay. I don't know about you guys, but if I fast for four days, it it feels like I've been fasting for forty. But it's probably not. Jesus was a man, and he endured this withdrawal of food, and at the greatest, most weakest point his physical body could be in, he was tempted with a virtual reality. Who led Jesus into the desert, by the way? The Spirit. The Spirit. Who led Moses into the desert? Who led Israel into the desert? Mm, I see a pattern here. In this state of being without, in the state of having to suffer in order to be obedient to God's will, Jesus found himself in need, legitimate need. After 40 days, your body starts eating itself. And you start to truly die. But he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What he had inside of him was a reality that was able to discern what was real and what was not real. The following two temptations were in other areas, but ultimately he was the king. He was the king before that moment. He gave up his majesty and glory to step down to where we were in our fallen state, become like his brothers in every way so that we could be rescued. But begs the question, rescued from what? I think what our greatest tendency is, is wanting to be rescued from suffering. Mm. But that's not granted unto us to be rescued from suffering. What are we rescued from, saints? Death. Sin. Death. Is, is, is sin and death suffering? Absolutely. It's at work in all of our bodies right now. It wages war against our spirit to the point we do not know what we want. But God has given each and every person in this room the ability to hear from Him, to be led by him, to be fed by him, to have exactly what you need in that moment of suffering. There's a phrase I would love for you to memorize. It's derived from several scriptures in the word, but without suffering, there is no glory. Without the cross, there is no resurrection. So you guys still hanging out in Philippians? Yes. Let me give you another reference. Chapter 3. Verse 10 through 12. Cody, read that for us. I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, be conformed to his death, in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or I have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was 
lay hold of what um, lay hold of my priors to Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of me yet, but one thing I do, I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forth what lies ahead. Amen. I want to break this down a little bit. Get my Bible and put down my water. Yeah, put the living water. It's 3 verse 10. Let's see. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now, when we say fellowship, what do we usually mean? Good, yes, exactly. Let's go eat something. <laughs> now, meals are not a bad thing, but this koinonia. This bonding of hearts and of spirits over a, a meal, over a meeting, over a cup of coffee. Praise God, Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Got something right in that regard. But imagine sitting down and really looking at this into your own life and say, how am I seeking fellowship with the sufferings of Christ? Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't see necessarily crucifixes for rent anywhere that we can go crawl up on and partake in those sufferings. Or even 40 lashes minus one. I mean, it's kind of like buy one, get one free around here, right? No. But what is it that we are able, what do the sufferings of Christ look like? Let's begin with kind of the phrase that we have back here, one life, one family, one nation. In your one life, you wrestle with the same thing that Jesus did. What was it that caused the nations or the people, the Romans, to persecute him like he did. Sin. Ultimately sin. What caused his own countrymen to forsake him and give him up like Joseph's brothers did? Sin. What was it that put him in the grave? Sin. So the, the fellowship and sharing of his sufferings is his war is also your war. You sit down and you look for those opportunities to intimately know what it's like to battle sin. Now, we start with that one life in your life. How are you battling sin? Are you sitting down to fellowship with Jesus' worry with sin within you? Or are you pretending to be in your little virtual world of saying, this really doesn't exist in me. I see it in everybody else. But this really doesn't exist in me. I'm not going to read God's word. I'm not going to worship. I'm not going to whatever it may be. But do you realize that when you sit down to read God's word, what happens? It jumps off the page. It comes alive. It confronts you where you are at with the Lord, but we're also part you fellowshipping in his sufferings of dealing with sin. Because if you're not at war with sin, then either you're dwelling in a sin-free environment or you're not noticing that it's there. So let's continue to read. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Key phrase in here that jumps out to me, going to another facet of virtual reality of God's will, is being a parent. 
And the phrase that jumps out is took hold. I'm sure you all got, you guys know exactly where I'm going with this. My father was very good at taking hold of my rear end and disciplining it. And rightly so. But how about this? Cass described it to me earlier when we were talking about the subject. That for you ladies, the idea of being a mother. Uh, describe it a little bit, Cass, what you said in this the Downey commercial. <laughs> so you, for all, all you ladies who have had kids you know that that is a virtual reality that does not exist <laughs> Cass in fact right after she said you may do that for about two minutes but then you're thrown up on you cry or scream it at your face or a diaper explodes right there on the blanket that you so nicely cleaned up and laid out there's a reality to being a parent that that is you do not comprehend until you were there. I watched baby after baby, child after child, before I was even married. And I, I kind of knew, I anticipated that being a parent's gonna have its challenges and I probably had to spank my kids every now and then. And that mainly my wife would change the diapers, but that stuff in the middle just really wouldn't stink all that bad. <laughs> until it's 2 a.m. for the hundredth time and they won't go to bed because they have colic or the back of their throat is burned because of acid reflux. And in your stupor, in the middle of the night, your hands just kind of get all up in the stuff that's in the diaper. Yeah. You don't realize it until you go back to bed and your wife says, what's on your fingers? Oh. <laughs> and you know, after the hundredth time that has happened and you've lost lots of sleep, your, your most godly response just isn't ready and waiting to jump out of you. It's just the opposite. So this reality that we build up in our minds of what having children is going to be like, do those things occur? Absolutely. Does God want you to experience those wonderful moments of being a parent with your children? Yes. But honestly, all the parents are probably nodding their heads up and down by now, that daily interaction is more about taking hold of their sinful nature and putting it in right line. That's every day, all day. Cash used to call me all the time and occasionally still does. She says, I feel like such an ogre. She would be bawling on the phone. All I do is spank my children. All I do is fuss at them. This is all day, every day. And it was easy for me. I was back at the office and I said, baby, this is just a season. It's going to be all right. You just stay steadfast with this. God's going to give you what you need. You know what? You just need to pray more. Yeah, absolutely. As I finished up my game of solitaire and took care of some documents. Nice. <laughs> I would even to go to the extent of like coming home and she, well, she very gingerly handed Natalie to me. And uh, it was literally the equivalent of 100 decibels being blasted in my ears. Natalie screamed. And within three seconds, I'm where she was after three hours. And all of a sudden this reality that is no longer over the phone, but now in my ear and in my face, of what it's like to be a dad and manage a home, I am overwhelmed by, and those words are ringing in my ear, you just need to pray more. Well, I am praying that I can actually hold my child and not want to harm them in that moment. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
So this encouraging word of telling my wife, hey, it's just a season, I had no idea the season would last somewhere around, I don't know, 10 years after the multiple babies stay two and under. What God was trying to do or did in me and did in my wife is form in us a reality of what God's word looks like when you implement it in resisting sin. It was She was fellowshipping in the sufferings of Christ by being a mother that warred against the sinful nature of her children, but also warred against the sinful nature of herself. Yeah. That whenever you have multiple toddlers around you, and they're biting your ankles, begging for food, and throwing stuff at you, there are certain carnal responses that you just, I've had enough. You want to hit a wall, you want to jump out of a window in the second story, maybe the fifth story. <laughs> But you have to have that ability. What God is training you to do is to have that ability to war against sin, to fellowship and share in his sufferings. How many times did he explain something with a simplistic parable to the disciples and they still did not get it? What was his reply? Are you still so dull? There's one thing besides no that comes out of a parent's mouth. I think later on after the age of 10, it's that phrase, are you still so dull? This is part of discipleship, of warring against sin. You still old in Philippians? Yeah. Y'all ready to turn? Yes. Or burn? Chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, four verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content where whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, or the living in plenty or in want. Let's just stop right there. A secret is just that. It's not easy to find. At this point in time, Paul had been in the faith well over 15 years, maybe even 20. And getting to that point of having to war against sin within himself, sin within his countrymen, sin within the people that ruled over him and them taking advantage of him in uh, forms of injustice, of imprisoning him, beating him. It was through that suffering that brought the reality of what being content in every situation is. Do you think that naturally most people would say, I need the Garden of Eden to be content in every situation. Yeah. Isn't that what we look for sometimes? If only I could just have this right job. If only I could just have this right child. If only I could just have this right spouse. Then I could be content. It's always contingent upon your circumstances and everything that surrounds you. Let me just have a news flash. Mankind got the best of the best that ever could be and still failed mm. to be content. Mm. The one thing that we need, that we have to have in order to understand what contentment and truly living in his life is, is that we need suffering. 
Guys, have you ever thought at some point when you're working on a project, especially outside, and the frustration of trying to complete something, you just kind of wonder, Adam, what did you do? And you just messed up my whole world. If only you wouldn't have messed up and ate from that tree, then I wouldn't have such a hard time building this shed or cutting this grass or whatever it may be. I always saw it as a curse that God put upon all of mankind to teach us a lesson. That you don't disobey my word, because that's what I would do. But the closer I look within the word, the full spectrum, especially the image of who Jesus is and what he did to give me life, I said suffering is a blessing. <laughs> suffering was a protective element that he put on Adam and therefore everything else that he was over that constantly kept Adam in need of God. Suffering keeps you in need of God. Amen. You know that Jesus well knew the details of how he was going to be crucified and that he anticipated it well in advance because he was constantly seeking something from the Father in constant communication and fellowship with the Father. And the Father revealed these things to him so that when that time was coming in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press, he knew his time was there. It did, now was the fulfillment for why he became like his brothers in every way. And in that, he fell to his face and asked the Lord three times, Father, there's any other way that we can do this, please. And in the end, he said, not your will, but mine, not my will, but yours be done. That that suffering, that pressing as an olive press on the king of kings, the most perfect human being that's out there, produced a glory that is unsurpassed or that will never be surpassed by anything else and actually provides a source of life for every human being that has lived, was living, or would live. So let's shrink that down to our little world. What is it like for a mother who wakes up every day, has to combat the sinful nature of their children? What is it like for a father or a husband who wakes up every day and has to combat the sinful nature of himself, but also the people in his workplace? you feel like it's mundane, it's repetitious, it has no goal, it has no end. It's so that through that suffering, you are in need of God and are able to eventually give life to those who are ready to receive it. The one phrase that Jesus gave this ministry that has been a lifesaver for me has removed tons of stress off of my shoulder and off of Eric's was changing one life at a time. Just one. That the thought of looking at that map, or looking at just the map of Sugar Land and saying, it is now my responsibility to capture as many people as I can, as fast as I can, and make them all change right now. That is daunting and overwhelming for me. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm simple. But I know that his yoke is easy and his burden is like, his shoulders are designed to do that. And you know what? If I did accomplish that, I bet you I would struggle with stealing all the glory from him. Mm. 
that I would give them my life and not his. And it wouldn't last. Stone Philippians? Yes. So verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is a pretty common passage, right? You hear this everywhere, especially American Idol. Yeah. But what preceded that? Suffering. Paul is saying from the depths of his own experience, but where it resonates with us is that when you quote 413, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it is there to, to give you hope when you suffer. Not so that you can achieve some glorious goal, some insurmountable feat that no other man could. Jesus already did it. It's so that you can have hope when you are surrounded by despair. So stay in chapter 4 and bring it to another one. Actually go to Acts chapter 5. bring up some current politics, or not politics, but current events. Today was National Chick-fil-A Day. Oh, yeah. We saw the pictures on Facebook, and it was phenomenal. Three circled lines of cars through the drive-thru of the one in here in Sugar Land. Everywhere. 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 That, that was pretty synonymous, except for a few areas within the, the city of Houston. Yeah. But, but as we read this, in chapter 5 of Acts verse 41, the legacy that the owner of Chick-fil-A is going to leave, because he doesn't have much more time on earth left, the legacy that he leaves, praise God, is more than incredible waffle fries and a chicken sandwich. Yes. Amen. <laughs> so is that amen to the waffle fries or amen to the legacy? Okay, amen. We say amen. And the sauce. You can't leave out the sauce. Bam! That somewhere a long time ago, God birthed within this man to start a business of just making meals out of chicken and delicious waffle fries. And he could have strived. What was that? And sweet tea. I forgot about sweet tea. You gotta have the full circle. Okay. Alright, here comes the fellowship. But what appeared to be just like a business venture, he set a precedent, not just today. You guys know that Chick-fil-A is never open on Sunday? That's right. Yeah. Now, if we're going to confess here, do a little bit of toe dot, confess and then rejoice. There have been several times the way back home from church, I was craving Chick-fil-A, and I was like, man, we're supposed to break those rules. It's okay. We're free from the law. Open up on Sunday. I'm hungry. I want some waffle fries. But years of holding to the standard and convictions of God's word in his business, multi-million dollar business, showed a level of integrity and character that is now comprising the solid rock of where he stands today. It built his strength and ability and resolve to face the persecution that he faced today, or has been the past couple weeks. So the, the common phrase, you want to do what I do, but not do what I have done. Mm -hmm. 
this man is a giant in the kingdom. I'm sure he's not perfect, but the stand that he has taken and been unapologetic for, standing on the word of God being his everything, it permeates all facets of his business. You know that uh, after, shortly after making that proclamation on the Sunday, uh, you know, asking the owner of Chick-fil-A, please open up on Sunday, I began to watch. And that every time during the week, Monday through Saturday, I passed by Chick-fil-A, it was, it's always packed. It's always packed. And there's a fine line between it just being incredibly awesome food and the favor of God resting on a man's business. That because he honored the Sabbath, which is actually something that happened before the law, it happened on the days of creation, he honored God's pattern. God doubly blessed him when he needed to carry him for McDonald's stays open 24-7. It consumes and goes out there for everything it can. It lessens the quality of its food in order to increase profits. It drains as much as it can for its own benefit. Mm -hmm. And trust me, McDonald's fries are hard to beat. Mm -hmm. Y'all know I love food. Poof the boom. But being able to sit back and see what this man has endured and suffered, right now he is fellowshipping in the sufferings of Christ because of the legacy that he has built his entire life and business upon. That's something for us to aspire to. So what are you doing within your household, ladies? Or what are you doing within your workplaces? Where are you, what are you doing with the realm that God has given you to implement the integrity of God's word in every area? And don't relent. Because what you build today in obedience to Christ may be something God wants to use and build on top of years from now. In your lifetime or maybe the next, the next generation that comes after you. Realize that every godly person that you meet is the product of someone showing Christ to them in some shape or form. We are an extension of a godly legacy of someone we met or maybe have never met. The people that we met demonstrated the actions of Christ to us, and the ones we haven't met are the ones that prayed and interceded for us. They did war in the heavenly realms for our souls to be saved. That's something I want to pass on to my children, to their children, but also to everybody I come in contact with. So you guys are still in Acts chapter 5? Yeah. Right. Verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Let me read that again. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They couldn't be stopped. But this, is, this hit me the first time I ever read it, and I still am trying to wrap my mind around it and how I implement it to my own life. They counted themselves worthy of suffering disgrace I think we're honest with ourselves we want to run 
from this grace. We want to uphold the goodness of our name and therefore not shove Christ down everybody's throats at work. Not call out sin in the, the backslidden Christian that we meet. We just rather be at peace with people and it's okay. You know, God will send somebody else to speak to them. But anyone who went, wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. You will stand out. What we learned last Sunday, what Eric shared on, it's about being that light in a dark place. But sometimes it just requires lots of darkness in order for the light to stand out very, very brightly. We see it evident in Chick-fil-A, but how can we imitate the godly behavior that 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 man, the owner of Chick-fil-A is, but in our own realm, our own spectrum. Alright, next verse. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Now just a side note, we've been laying you out. In case you guys haven't noticed, one of those things that almost every chapter of the Bible, if you look at chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 4, verse 12, there's always something really, really good there. This is a side note. So when you have uh, your reading time later tonight or tomorrow, try that out a couple of times. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. Blessed. So if you have a hundred grand in the bank that has a six percent interest rate, you are no. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The presence of God upon your shoulders is invaluable. Amen. There is no life outside of this. But y'all remember what the name means? The Hashem? The character. The body of work. The substance of what makes up that name. So that when you say the name, uh, I don't know. Uh, Day, the last name Day. You think of John's wonderful smile and joy, being a, a, a beautiful butterfly that just uh, welcomes everybody in the room. Their name has substance to it; it has a body of work. The name of Christ, the name of the Messiah, carries weight to it. In fact, there's no other greater name that's out there. And when you plaster that name across the front of your life and you make it very visible to all around you will be persecuted but you're not alone that on the cross Jesus hurt on the cross he bled was pierced he suffered but it wasn't worth the glory that was going to be revealed in him three days later we're reading other scriptures that the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. Mm. But how often do we believe that? More so, how often are we dissuaded from that? Forget it. In the midst of 
whatever suffering it may be, you feel like the devil has robbed you in some shape or form. And the injustice has been done. Always remember that the glory of God is at the helm to come through. We just have to wait. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. Better said, long suffering. I don't know about you, but that was hard. I like short suffering. I'm just honest. It's like when we go to the doctor. I'd rather them prick my finger for a, a blood sugar than have to draw blood from my, my arm. Because that needle's about that long. And I hate it. But we need to do what is obedient so that the glory of God can be revealed in us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's keep reading. Verse uh, 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. If it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Skip down to verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Don't stop. Don't stop. Turn to Isaiah 53. guys there? Yeah. All right. So 53 verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Being familiar with suffering, according to God's will, gives you the ability to imitate exactly what Jesus did. We read Isaiah 61 and it sends chills down our spine. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted, to set the prisoners free. When you guys go out to the abortion clinic, that's what you're going out there to do. But there's a suffering that comes with it. Being disgraced in public 
almost being hit by cars that don't want to stop. Being scorned by your family members or even your coworkers that think you're just nuts and kind of crazy. If you begin in the state of giving up all to Jesus, then suffering can truly be seen as not taking anything from you, but able God to give everything to you. I think a lot of times what I do, I correlate suffering with injustice. And I more define it as something wrong was done to me. Therefore, God has to pay back evil to them. That's not necessarily the case. That's not what Isaiah 61 was there for. God will repay vengeance upon the wicked. That is actually part of 61. But who God put in front of me right then and there are the ones that I'm looking to imitate, that their words may pierce me so that I can show them what true forgiveness may look like. That they may crush me with burdens and obligations or slander so that I can extend a, a friendly hand and forgive them when they're proved wrong. That even if it went to the extent that they use their fists to strike me in my face, that at some point I'll have the opportunity to hug them and tell them I love them. Today I received in a pamphlet from the Voice of the Martyrs. And in it, John Joy, they go through three different house churches in Vietnam and Laos. And they show a pastor being released in January 2012 from a 13-year sentence because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. This is in Vietnam. They actually have a picture of his face, and it's black and blue. He's missing teeth from when they use the butt end of a gun or their fist to knock him out. And a, a look at that suffering and that he continues on to do good. That in it he is full of joy. You see him smiling. And what is on his shoulders is exactly what First Peter 4 talked about. The glory of God. This kaval, this heaviness, this weight that's upon him. When he goes into a village, he finds it successful if one family, one person receives the gospel. And if there's more than that, and he just gives more glory to God. How many churches would be satisfied and give glory to God if just one person received Christ in their, their church or one person attended the church? But this guy sees it as an honor and a blessing to suffer with Christ in the same way that he did, if not more. Yeah, there's a picture also of his house, dilapidated. You can tell they ransacked it. The local authorities knocked all the beams out and leveled it to the ground. And his wife and his young child were standing next to him, uh, in front of the house. And you can see on their faces, they're distressed. They don't know what they're going to do. Do they run to another town? Do they stay there and stand their ground and eventually be martyred? For the gospel. In fact, recently, the laws in Vietnam allow you to preach the gospel. 
that's favorable. But it's the local police that have jurisdiction and they don't abide by it. And there's no recompense whenever they do. Where Eric is going now in India, villages beat families that turn from Hindu to the gospel. That's right now. So when we look at our circumstance and really ask, are we sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Or more so, what would we do in their situation? If I were in that man's shoes, what would I do? If I'm locked up in a cell and day after day, I'm starved, I'm beaten, I'm asked to renounce. This is what they tell them, in fact. Quit being poor. Just renounce this Jesus. Come be part of the Communist Party. You'll have a good job. You'll make lots of money. Come and drink and play with us. It's one thing to suffer when there's no other, other alternative. It's another thing to suffer for Christ when there legitimately is. His own countrymen are trying to persuade him to give up Jesus for something better. So as we live out our daily lives in America, you know what, honestly, what we wage war against? It's not necessarily persecution, because not yet, nobody has been massacred in front of a Chick-fil-A for buying something off the menu today. We're not to that level in America just yet. But you know what we fight war against? Is a sea of prosperity that we can easily drown in it if we're not careful. That this ease of life and availability for everything we need for life can become an alluring depth that will sink us in a heartbeat of Jesus. That after just a handful of times I've been out of the country and back in, I long and I miss the way of life in other countries. I really do. Cody being able to wake up and go work outside and take a bucket of ice cold well water and dump it over my face is incredible. To be able to wash my clothes by hand and let them air dry to where they feel like cardboard is awesome. They really feel clean. But more so what it has to do is not having this ocean of prosperity to go jump in whenever you you don't have how many times did we walk down to that little store? At least twice a day, right? It was more about the fellowship and everything else. And ice cream. <laughs> but I did not see. We drove from uh, Munich, Germany, through Vienna, I'm sorry, through Austria, through Hungary, and into Romania. 11, 1,400 kilometers. Or, I'm sorry, uh, 1,200. Anyway. And that whole trip there, you know what I didn't see? Huge... Walmart superstores. Advertisement after advertisement again and again that said you can have this. You can be this. This is what you can look like. This is what you can possess. You know they had a, a gas station about once every 25 miles on the interstate. We would see that as just apostasy in America. I gotta be able to pull over, fill up my gas tank again and get drinks and all that kind of stuff. But what I'm trying to get to is that you weren't inundated with you're doing without, you're doing without. Life was just very a matter of fact. And honestly, 
the children and people were much more content there than they are here. Because here we're reminded all the time of what we don't yet have. Mm. That's the seed of prosperity that we drown in. Mm. So what we share in and how we share in the sufferings of Christ is that we wrestle against the sin that originated in the garden. The lies that were spoken to Eve and then to Adam telling her, did God really say? There's really more out there that you can't have that God's just withholding from you. If you just change this up a little bit in your walk, in your speech, how you interact and do business dealings, you can really, I mean, you can have this. That the American dream, if we're all honest, is to do, be responsible for very little, but have the power to do a whole lot. And what God wants is just the opposite from us. He wants us to be responsible for imitating Christ, but being near powerless to achieve it so that we're dependent upon Him. Amen. So I challenge you guys and myself as we go out throughout the next week, seek out that fellowship of sharing in the sufferings. Where is it that you find that God is constantly putting a situation to war against your sinful nature or the sin that's at work around you, but you war with it in His way and not yours? So that Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 61 are the fruit of your war. That's the, the plunders of a victory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.